people are voting with their feet. If they don't like where they're working there, literally, that's why the great, you know, resignation was happening. People were reevaluating their jobs, their lives, and they were leaving jobs that were not meaningful. They were leaving employers and, and leaders that, that were not good for them. And they were making decisions to, to better orient their overall lives ar around their work. So that urgency really speaks to recognizing that people really do want meaning and purpose in their, in their lives and their work. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. Those who've heard me speak at conferences or just listen to this podcast regularly probably recognize that I don't go in for a lot of woo. Quite honestly, I think there's way too much unspecific, fuzzy psychobabble in popular modern business talk. That's one of the reasons I often skip out of the keynote sessions at a lot of the conferences I attend. But I do believe, as my friend, performance coach, John Sawada taught me years ago, leading people means making sure that they know that you know that they exist, matter, and make sense. And I'm about 85% on board with conscious capitalism as laid out in that book by John Mackey and Raj Sisodia. And today I'm joined by another practical business thinker who helps companies become more human. Dr. Elise Cortez is the Chief Purpose Officer at Elise Cortez & Associates, a management consulting firm specializing in the activation of meaning and purpose. She is also an inspirational speaker, social scientist, author, and host of the Working on Purpose radio show. She's the author of four books, the most recent of which is The Great Revitalization, How Activating Meaning and Purpose Can Radically Enliven Your Business. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Elise. Thanks for having me, Mike. It is great to be on the other side of the mic with you. Well, thank you for being here. And you and I recently met with a small group of business leaders to discuss your new book, The Great Revitalization. Uh, and I want to thank you for in, in, including me in that. It was a really insightful hour and a half. And uh, there have been a lot of things that I've continued to think about from, from what you and the other participants shared. Uh, so thank you for that. Let's start with your take on the current state of the American workforce. All right. Let's go right out of the gate, huh, Mike? Okay. Yeah, let's hit it hard. Well, my perspective is definitely shaped very strongly by what I have in that book. And I thank you again for showing up and contributing your voice to that conversation, because that, to me, that's what makes these kind of conversations worthwhile and useful. My perspective really is that the pandemic has really radically changed the way that we live and the way that we work. And before the pandemic, I think a lot of people were very happy to have work that was required for their lives to revolve around. So everything was, work was the center of everything. And I think today what's happened is a lot of people, what happened during the pandemic is their consciousness was raised and they questioned their lives and what they wanted from their lives and what they were willing to tolerate through the course of their lives and who was connected in their lives. And so there was really a quite a reevaluation, if you will. And I think that what's happened is people are now expecting more from their work. What they want from work is not just a great paycheck and some, and some good benefits, but they really do want work that they find meaningful for an organization that aligns with their, with their values and ideally 
makes them feel like they can live their purpose through that organization. And they're not willing to be in organizations where there's heavy toxicity. That the, that well-being focus is really, really something that emerged as well and came out in the, in the leaders it's who focused on that during the pandemic too. So um, what I see increasingly is that people just want more from, the, from their lives and their work. And they really now want work that allows them to be able to have life as their center focus and work situates and can respond and be har- harmonious with that. When I talk to business leaders at whether they are clients or at HR conferences or wherever I'm at, I hear a lot that, well, managing these Gen Zs is really hard. They want all the things you just talked about, right? They, you know, <laughs> that, they, that they're radically different. But my experience, and I, I think what you're saying too, is that that's not just Gen Z. That's the millennials who are now, you know, approaching 40 and my generation, Gen X. I mean, I think it's mo- a lot of the workforce has done some sort of reevaluation about what they really want out of their work experience. I completely agree. And to your point, what's interesting to me from my vantage point is if you look at where we're headed in terms of the workforce majority, I think it's by 2030, the expectation is that uh, Gen Y, which is also the millennials and Gen Z, will be the majority of the workforce. And so their values and what they want from work will really steward the the trend, if you will, of how leaders and companies need to be able to supply what they're asking for. And that tide is turning. And I, I remember when the millennials came into into the into the onto the scene. And I think what they did for us is they they helped us understand that we could have some life work balance, if you will, in quotation marks, air quotes. Um, whereas before, I'm also uh, Gen X, that wasn't something that we really thought about. Yeah. And I think our generation was, for at a certain level, more willing to go along with the baby boomer work ethic. Uh, you know, that we were, you know, we were pretty outnumbered for a while there. And uh, that was just the way it was. And it seems to be continually evolving. And even if you're organizations, you know, surviving or even thriving today with that work culture that's certainly results driven. There's nothing wrong with that. But that is, you know, you leave your your entire life at home, you show up here, you put in your eight or nine hours, then you go home and those are completely two different worlds and they should never interfere with each other, except when the company needs you to interfere with your personal life. Those, uh, that, if that's even if that's working for you today, if you want your company to be in position to succeed in 10 years, when the first of the Gen Xers start to retire, you're going to have to change your culture, right? Absolutely. And in fact, you know, one of the things I remember writing about in the in the book, in the chapter two on urgency was, I remember so distinctly, Mike, I sitting in my front home window, watching people in my neighborhood walk by, and I would, I had what I described as moving caravans of a reconnection. And people literally in the neighborhood were taking strolls, the adults who were strolling along and sipping on something, and the kids were merrily on their their tricycles or scooters or whatever, and the and the pets were, you know, gallivanting alongside them. It was such a beautiful thing to see, and you saw all of this taking place like writ large in real time. And and so that what we're seeing increasingly is that people want to be able to, if you can imagine this, get eight hours of rest, um, get exercise, be able to see their children's performances at school on occasion, right? So. Um, I I really am seeing that there, as a social scientist, I'm seeing these trends that I think are just so fascinating, and I think it's it's healthy. It's it's a good direction for us. So, in the Great Re- Revitalization, you use the acronym GUSTO, G U S T O, uh, 
And I want to dive into the specifics of of uh, what each it's an acronym and what each of those mean. But kind of give me the big picture view of what you mean by by gusto. Yeah, it's such a great word. So I'll first preface preface it by saying that um, because I lived in Spain and Brazil in my twenties, and I speak Spanish and Portuguese still today, the word gusto means something in all three of those languages, including English. So it really, it, most people, when I ask them that question, what does gusto mean to you? I get things like it's zest, it's oomph, it's motivation, it's determination, it's all those things for sure. So it's definitely, you know, energy on not maybe not on steroids, but just definitely energetically focused. And uh, yeah, you mentioned you speak Spanish and Portuguese, and you even, uh, uh, if I remember from the book, you translated. Uh, for Raj Sisodia at an event and, into Spanish, which is really cool. And for those who aren't familiar, Raj Sisodia is probably the intellectual capital behind the conscious capitalism movement and a really sought after speaker and, and writer on, on that stuff. Um, so I think that's kind of cool too. This, uh, that's the feather in, in your cap that I think is the coolest uh, just because you got to bring his message to a, a group of, of leaders uh who who weren't native English speakers. So I think that was really cool. Actually, I so Dr. Raj Sisodia and Neha Sangwan invited me to be part of their faculty. So I was we were part of a group of faculty that of multilingual faculty who were teaching 115 CEOs conscious capitalism. So because I speak Spanish, I got to do my part in, in the Spanish. And it was such an honor to get to work with Raj and Neha on that. It was just amazing. Yeah. And everybody I've I've ever I've never met him, but everybody who's ever worked alongside him, uh and we went through, you know, his process with the Texas Association of Business to redefine the State Chamber of Commerce here in Texas' uh, purpose and mission. And it was, uh, it was a lot of work, but it was mm-hmm. certainly a really, really good investment. So gusto or gusto, uh, the first one, the G is is gumption. Talk about what you mean by gumption, because that's a, that's a term that maybe people of a certain era understand and may, and maybe others don't. That's totally fair, right? There was definitely a part of me that sort of sometimes harkens back to earlier times, it seems. But I, I like the word gumption because, one, if it's the acronym, but two, um, I, it really speaks to the notion, the importance of lead, that leaders, the work that leaders have to do in, to be able to really relate to their business and and find 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 that, you know, love it again. Just like relationships, we need to go and see what do we love about this person? Same thing with your company, your business. What do I love? What do I appreciate about this? And, and get connected to that because that's where you you can summon your determination and your your courage, your creativity, all these things to stay with it. And then also to really look for ways that you can add, if you will, some beauty to your business. How else can you serve your stakeholders so that in in so doing that you really get turned on by what you're doing in your business? Because that you know, when you're turned on with what you're doing, of course, that energy goes everywhere and it's magnetic. So it really just speaks to, you know, really getting clear about what is your business? Why is it important? Why do you care about it? Because you cannot inspire and really lead people until you're in that kind of a frame. That's why it's the first chapter for sure. And when you're talking about stakeholders, and that really ties into that conscious capitalism idea that a company, you know, that that stakeholder capitalism or their shareholder capitalism that, that that you've got this one set of stakeholders that your your company serves has really not served us well and that we really need to realize that the the business entity has other stakeholders and we can succeed and maybe be more successful by addressing all our stakeholders you need, can you dive a little bit deeper into who those stakeholders are 
and and how companies impact them. Yeah, I remember distinctly when in 2000, August of 2019, when the Business Roundtable redefined the the definition or the purpose of an organization from being shareholder focused, in other words, the investors, to all stakeholders and for the benefit of serving all of them and lifting lives along the way. So those other stakeholder components, of course, include things like this important population, like your employees who actually power your organization, your clients, your your suppliers. Um, your actual community, those in your community who may or may not use your services, but somehow they are impacted by what you do. And then there's also really even the accounting of the actual planet. What are you actually doing? How are you doing business in a way that actually helps either protect the the planet or actually are you doing things to destroy it? So all of those are considered stakeholders in today's world of business. And this is probably where I said, when I say I'm 85% on, on board with cap- conscious capitalism, that 15% is is really around the idea that, and I think it's often a mistranslation of what the point is, but that serve, by serving those stakeholders, we put our shareholders second or on the back burner. And I think there's there are expectations uh, in certain, certain social movement that that's what impl- businesses do. But I, you know, I'm convinced that it's got more to do with a long-term strategy. And I think yes. you talk about that in the book too, that understanding that if we continue, if we treat our employees well and recognize their needs in the workplace, we're going to be more successful as a company because they're going to stick around and we're going to develop skills. We're going to invest in them and they're going to be better employees. And if we treat our customers the way that they really want and deserve to be treated over the long term, our profits will be better. Our customer retention and our cost of acquisition of customers will be lower all those things, and including our community. I mean, you know, we become the employer of choice and the vendor of choice uh, when the community trusts and respects us and all those. So um, that's, I think, sometimes in some of the conscious capitalism conversations, people lose sight of that piece. And it's as though the company exists for some other reason uh, and than, 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 you know, returning an investment or executing on the mission, whether it's a profit for profit or if it's a non-profit or, you know, whatever the mission of the organization is, our purpose is to execute on that. But that doesn't mean that we have to give short shrift to these other stakeholders. Mm -hmm. Correct me where I'm wrong there. No, I think that was extremely well said. No, no, I think that was extremely well said. You want to, you do want to fight, huh? Okay. Well, we can find something else to fight about, but we're aligned on that one. Okay, great. So gumption is primarily that conscious capitalism approach to recognizing who our, our stakeholders are, loving how we serve them. I mean, like one of imper- you know, imperative operates on the the traction model, uh, the EOS model, and we uh, we when we talk about who we serve, uh, it's not it's not employers who want to buy a background check, uh, even though that's what we do. We're a background screening company. Our our stated purpose is to serve clients who absolutely love us. And we, we made that decision to make that our focus, to creating clients who absolutely love us, when about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, we had to fire our second largest client because they were awful. They would yell at, our, at my employees and they would be, and nobody was happy. And we were never going to make those people happy. They were just the kind of people, that was the organization and the culture that they were in. Um, and And so moving forward from that, we said... We only enjoy this as long as we're dealing with clients who love it. And so that gives us the impetus to focus on 
those clients, meeting their unique needs and, and making sure that we never give them a reason not to love us. And, and recognizing sometimes this isn't the right relationship for you or us and, and you got to move on. So I think that that idea that as an organization, we need to build those relationships and be excited about those relationships and be excited about what we get up and do every day. I think that's really key. And, um, you know, and certainly, you know, I started my company, so we're founder run and all my friends who are entrepreneurs. I mean, most of them still do love their companies. I think when a, a company gets a lot larger and it is more investor driven and the, especially when the executives change every three to six years, you lose a lot of that or you, you're at risk of losing a lot of that. And I think that's why being intentional about what you call gumption is really important. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And I, so what I got present to as you were talking, Mike, is you think about this, you know, work is really a fundamental way that we spend our lives. It's a profound way that we spend our lives. And I, I happen to, I think you have, I've told you this before, I'm, I'm out to, to reorient the word from a bad four letter word to something that's precious for people. And, and so, you know, when you think about how you spend your whole day, if, if, if that, experience doesn't fill you, doesn't lift you, but rather pulls you down, then it, this is, that needs to change. And so, yeah, that finding that gumption and being, being proud of what you're up to, who you work for, what you're doing is, is a critical part of well-being and fulfillment. And then the you in Gusto is urgent. What do we need to have urgency about? Yeah, uh, it's, it, it, that was really a fun chapter to write. It's it really what I'm speaking to in that chapter is that what's happened is the world has fundamentally changed very, very quickly, really since the pandemic. And, and most people don't really understand just how fast and how much it's changed. So it really speaks to, you know, you got to really recognize quickly how things have changed and get on board with that. And, and that's where we kind of open the conversation with is, you know, people are voting with their feet. If they don't like where they're working there, literally, that's why the great, you know, resignation was happening. People were reevaluating their jobs, their lives, and they were leaving jobs that were not meaningful. They were leaving employers and, and leaders that, that were not good for them. And they were making decisions to, to better orient their overall lives ar around their work. So that urgency really speaks to recognizing that people really do want meaning and purpose in their in their lives and their work. And the sooner that you can supply that and also recognize that how people's work gets done has fundamentally changed. And so that focus on, you know, presenteeism versus performance is something that I think has to very quickly be adapted inside organizations or else people will they they, they don't want to be chained to their to their desk. They want to be able to go and see their kid for lunch on a on, on some some sort of a regular basis. And so some of those changes that, you know, the old standard, you know, guard of, of command and control sort of environments completely no longer can, can, can support what the workplace wants. So that's what the chapter is really about. Yeah. And along those lines, when, when the pandemic started and, and, you know, as early as mid to late March of 2020, uh, people started going remote and I started talking to clients and, uh, and, and you know, if you're, you remember all the zoom calls we had with, with peer groups and other, yes. you know, what the hell are you going to do? What am I doing? I don't know. Right. Uh, and we were just kind of benchmarking over, over as we figured out how to use zoom. And one of the things I said from the very beginning was that the companies that had good performance management systems in place that could measure productivity besides walking around and determining who looked busy and who didn't, we're going to be fine in this remote environment for however long it lasted. And that the organizations that 
didn't have that, who, you know, like you said, presenteeism or just looking over their shoulders and that whole manage by walking around thing, uh, those folks were going to be challenged. And that's pretty much what I saw. I'm not sure, you know, what was your experience of, of how, which, which organizations really succeeded uh, during the pandemic and during, especially the remote piece? Well, I think you're a sage. I think you're spot on right that if you had a system in place to be able to measure and manage performance, that you're you're in a pretty good place. Um, what I also saw too is it, the organizations that are really operating from a place of mistrust. There, it was fascinating, Mike, is that talking to leaders, they would say, "Well, I don't believe in this whole work from home thing here." And as I I would press on it, and then what what would ultimately come out of almost every one of those conversations was they said, "I do not trust." my people will actually work when they're home. Right. And we're seeing that a lot. Right. And and so if you already have that belief in your mind as a leader, you're you you already know you're you're communicating that. And now you're going to set up trying controls around trying to 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 mitigate against that. So, you know, so then it comes down to, well, how do we actually create in workplaces where people actually want to come to work and give their best? If you can if you yeah. can answer that, you have a much better shot at being able to deal with a performance issue. And I think a big part of that is realizing that part of your culture boils down to who you hire and putting the right people in the right seats makes a big difference. And when things got tight in 2022 and we couldn't find people to work and we were putting warm bodies in seats, I advise a lot of clients, don't do this. I mean, you know, you're going to, you know, you're going to pay for this in the long term. And I think we're beginning to see that, especially as a recession is, is, on the horizon and, and business leaders are getting a little bit more conservative, uh, about their, their, you know, their hiring and, uh, and staffing sizing. I think we're seeing that, oh, well, either we had a lot of dead weight that we didn't, that really wasn't productive because we didn't have the right people, but also we look back and we realized one size doesn't fit all. And we lost, we maybe have lost some really good performers and and found ourselves in a situation where we hired two average performers or people that we have to manage a little heavier and all those kinds of things to replace that one person who would have been better off if we just figured out how to keep them. Mm, Great insight. That's amazing insight. Yes. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. This week, I want to take a minute to discuss education verifications. I often talk to employers who only verify applicants' education claims if that education is required by the job description. And I think that's a mistake. At Imperative, we see more people lying about their education and employment history than their criminal history. And even if the education they claim isn't relevant to the job, the fact that they may have lied about it during the application process is always relevant. You've heard it from me before. It's the gospel according to coffee. If they lie to you coming in the door, it isn't reasonable to expect their behavior to change after you hire them. So I encourage employers to verify all education claims made by their applicants. Heck, you can do it in-house if you want to, but I believe you're accepting too much risk if you don't verify those claims. Remember, in a well-designed employee selection process, the background check simply is a lie detector test, and investing in a thorough background check is a great investment in ensuring a quality hire. You can get more information about how Imperative helps risk-averse employers make well-informed decisions about the people they involve in their business at imperativeinfo.com. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, 
This episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 103 and enter the keyword gusto. That's G-U-S-T-O. And now back to my conversation with Elise Cortez. So after urgent, then we've got sustainability. And this is the part that starts to get into what, you know, puts my, you know, my antennas up around uh, some of the, the woo stuff. But I think you're right. Uh, but talk about sustainability and, and, and why it's important. Yeah. So this comes from having lots of conversations with different leaders and certainly other authors that talk about the importance of, of stewarding sustainability through your company. And and what I've, what I've come to and, and what I wrote about in the book is that, you know, today, business leaders are expected to take a stand on ESG, environmental, social and governance issues. And that's what I'm putting forth is that increasingly what we're seeing is that employees are again voting with their feet if they don't like how an organization is handling their sustainability issues if it doesn't align with their values and what they how they think the world should be addressed and handled and managed and and so are customers and so what we're what we're finding is that um, customers are, are very astute these days. They they do their research. They want to do business with organizations that do align with their values. And so if, for example, you are an organization, let's say you're a manufacturing organization, and part of what you have a lot of waste. And if you are, you know, you're not taking a stand on how are you handling whatever sewage that you're actually emitting, that can be a real problem for for being able to attract people who want to come to work or who want to invest in that sort of a thing. And so that that chapter really speaks to being mindful of taking a stand on wherever you are with, with regard to climate issues. And at this stage, I, I think it's really, from my vantage point, the, the conversations that I have, this idea of doing something about the climate, it, it's this, there's so much focus about it right now. There's the United Nations, so many organizations are putting so much focus on this. I don't see how we can possibly just you know, put it in the rearview mirror again and make it a nice to have, if we, you know, we get around to that if we have resources and time. Um, increasingly, it's just become a center stage component. And so the, the whole point is that organizations need to take some kind of a stand on it and they will alienate some people on that stand and they will draw others to them who align on that stand. But a stand is necessary. And, and you know, ESG's, you know, environmental social governance, but it's not just environmental. I mean, and I think that's, and give me your feedback, but I'm, I think it's really important that the, a company understand what's important to their stakeholders, you know, Imperatives to kind of, you know, we're, uh, we're not a manufacturer, we're, you know, we're a services firm. We have relatively, especially now that we're remote, very little impact on environment. But there are other things that I know from, you know, talking to both employees and in, in my community involvement and talking to our clients that, that our, our stakeholders are particularly concerned about. So while we focus less on on environmental things, we do focus a lot on other things that the organization can do, especially when those things are in the realm of our influence and and, and they're where we can make it make a difference. Like my, you know, we we spend a lot of time talking about second chance employ, employment, helping former offenders find meaningful work, and educating employers on what that means and how to do that in a way that protects the company, doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but at the same time opens doors to new talent to the employer and and gives opportunity fairly to 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 folks who've had critical errors in judgment in the past. And so, you know, I think I think that and I, and, and you address that pretty well in your book that that 
there's a there's a whole scope of things that are important to people and that if we want to engage with our employees and our clients we need to understand that exactly and so you know obviously what you just shared there with the second chance that speaks to the s the social piece and of course you and i've talked about that before i think that is so wonderful and that is definitely a way you take you've taken a stand on that mike you're you're a back background check company and you're taking a stand on giving people who have got a record to give them a job. And I think that's that's exactly what I'm talking about here. Some people will say, I like that, like me. I want to find a way to do business with this guy. And others will say, oh, that's a little bit too much for me. And they'll they'll opt out. Great on either front, right? Great on either front. We need the right people in the right seat and same for our clients too. We need the right clients. You know, we can't serve everybody. We need to know who our little niche is. And then therapy is the T in, in Gusto. And you you talk a, a good bit about uh, logotherapy. Uh, and, and I'm a big uh, fan of Viktor Frankl's uh, Man's Search for Meaning, which and Frankl, I guess, really developed that. So talk about how logotherapy ties into the business context. Yeah. So, yeah. So T is for therapy. And I mean, of course, logotherapy, as you say, and that's really, it's really therapy through meaning. It's a way, so since, since uh, according to logotherapy, and I am an organizational logotherapist, so I have like a master's level degree in, in, in logotherapy. And so what that really speaks to is it, in, in logotherapy, which is an existential psychology sort of branch, what it really speaks to, it is developed by Viktor Frankl. And it's put forth that meaning is our chief concern as humans. And it's also our, our, our main source of motivation and energy. So my whole premise in, in that chapter then is talking about how can you actually increase the, the capacity of people to activate their own meaning potentials, to be able to find more meaning in what they're doing in their everyday lives and their work, because in so doing, you will increase the motivation and the, the effort inside the organization. So if you, can, if you can find a way to get people to recognize how their everyday tasks are meaningful to them individually, which is a, an individual thing, meaning is registered along one's values, now what you've done is you have increased that, that valuable intrinsic motivation for them to want to stick around, to give their best, to help, help the organization realize its potential. And that's where you can really start to impact things like employee engagement, performance, retention, things like that. And so what do you say to that, that business leader who says, well, my people put pack parts in boxes all day long? I mean, there's not much meaning there. We're paying, you know, we're we're paying them, you know, X dollars an hour to show up and do this, and then they leave. Where's the, you know, that's not what, you know, this isn't going to be a life changing meaning job. Mm, couple things actually. Um, that's a fun question. Thanks, Mike. Um, one is first, you know, what does the actual company do? So, what are we putting in those boxes? Are these medical supplies? Are these diapers? What are they? Right. So let's get let's get focused on, you know, the over the over enlarged picture here. That that's where is the ship actually going? Where are these boxes headed to? You're making sure that people recognize that this is what you're you're facilitating us realizing the mission of this organization. If they can understand that, then those boxes become very meaningful. And then secondarily, the other thing, and I learned this from um, B. Bocolandro, who was on my radio show, and I talk about her in the book, is there's this idea of job purposing or social purposing. And that is where inside organizations, we can actually encourage people to go look for ways, sneak ways in, if you will, of, of finding meaning or doing something that's meaningful to them during the course of their days. So just a quick example of that is, she talks about here in her book, she talks about this parking attendant. And he's got this thing where, you know, he parks people's cars and that's what he does all day long. Where's the meaning in that? But what he does is he goes around while people are inside and whatever they're, wherever they park their car and he measures the tread on their tires. 
and he comes back and reports to the to the owners if it's if it's low because he knows they could blow a tire, they could have a wreck, they could something could really go go wrong here. And invariably, those people are shocked and amazed and so appreciative, and that's his little quiet little guilty pleasure that he gets during the day that he just you know folds into his everyday tasks. Doesn't cost him anything on his on his performance. Probably increases the the reputation of the the person or entity he parks cars for, but it gives him tremendous fulfillment to know that he's actually making a difference. And that's available anywhere. It just takes getting it present in the culture, encouraging it, rewarding it, and calling it out. And I think that's what you mean by manage through meaning. Yes, I, um, that's a little phrase you used in the in the book, and I jumped on it because it kind of inculcates everything. You know, all that stuff that can seem fuzzy, uh, but talking, you know, if we build into our communications with our employees on a daily basis, reminding them of what the mission is, who we serve, why we serve them, how we do that, and why we do it the way we do, that continually reminds them of, that. you know, there is purpose here. Even, you know, if you're loading a box or in the case of my my employees, you know, a lot of their time is spent doing high-level data entry, you mm-hmm. know, looking at criminal records that came in from someplace or talking to an employer and, and transcribing what they said. And uh, for an, a really ADHD person like me, who's, you know, uh, it, that's a really challenge. That'd be an impossible job to be, you know, you know, happy in for very long. But because we select well, you know, we, the people have the natural aptitude and skill uh, and competence to do that kind of work. But then talking about why we do it. And, right. and I've, I've con- I'm convinced after reading the book that I need to spend more time talking, you know, my employees get it secondhand. They see what I talked about in the podcast or that we're doing webinars on this or, or, you know, clippings from me talking at conferences and stuff, but I'm not talking to them as directly about it as I need to. And I need to, and so that, uh, that managed through meaning kind of came through to me really strong. So thank you for that. Wow. That's great. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. And then the O in gusto is ownership culture. And, uh, that was a, when people started writing their values a few years ago and every company had values, ownership was a big one. And then a lot of people had a hard time really defining what that meant uh, beyond uh, giving 150% to make sure the boss met his metrics. So what does ownership really mean to you when you're talking about ownership culture? Yeah, so it's ownership through purpose. And it's this notion of really getting all of your stakeholders on on, pay, on the page. I actually do a program where we bring people together from from representatives from each of the stakeholder communities so that we can actually align them all around an organization's purpose. When you get everybody aligned, your suppliers know what your purpose is, your employees know, your investors know, somebody from the community knows. It's just, it's really, really powerful. And so it's the notion of really um, gaining, and, and this is, it's a, something that I, I've been doing for with organizations for a while is it takes actually first detecting your purpose, really understanding it, um, because it does actually evolve according to how the world is changing, how, how you're serving from your purpose does evolve. And it does need that, as Paul Skinner says, an upgrade. So, you know, it's the notion of really getting everyone in your organization to be able to, as I like to say, wild alive scratch, to be able to articulate that purpose, get on board with it. So they know it. It's not just something that they, oh, well, let me go find that poster on the wall and read the purpose and mission statements. It's what they just say because they live it. And so when you when you get to that stage, and I call I call that exercise of aligning all those stakeholders around purpose, you're you're building your parliament of purpose. That is really powerful because now you have everybody pulling for the same direction. Everybody gets it, and then it becomes 
a unifying structure, if you will, to make decisions, choices. You know, it's very easy for people to be able to manage their own day-to-day tasks because they are governed by that purpose. They understand that this is what we're here for. And so I like what Zach Mercurio, who's been on my show, says, and then it becomes it's your company's invisible leader. And that's powerful, really mm-hmm. powerful. Yeah. And and then today, the other thing is we're seeing is increasingly more and more literature, more of my guests are talking about this notion that the world is moving so fast, so furiously that we cannot depend on just a few select leaders in an organization to run an organization effectively. We really need to enroll all the hearts and minds of an organization to really be weighing in on how where are we going, but in questioning, is this the right thing for us? So that we really get the, the best possible outcome from all those people in these really radically shifting times. And you know, we've we've covered those five key points uh, of of the book, and that's sort of like the first half of your book is really talking uh, uh, about uh, gusto and 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 these these things that we've barely just scratched the surface on today. One of the challenges I think business leaders have had over the years, and I think employees recognize it and call them out on it by walking out, they, uh, is they they give lip service to these things. But knowing how to really implement them in a way that's meaningful is a real challenge for a, a lot of uh, business leaders. And we're out of time, but I want to give you the opportunity to, you know, I, I definitely want everybody to go get the book and, and read the whole book. But the second half is, is a really practical how-to and a lot of tools in there. Uh, but kind of give the high-level overview of what the how-to looks like and how to really uh, you know, what kind of things is a leader going to have to really consider in order to make this real in their organization? Yeah, so I'll be brief. So it's uh, so that's the best practices of, of the book here. And so I organize them around ones that I would consider to go in the IQ camp, more rational, logical, the EQ camp, emotional intelligence, more caring, and and then the SQ, spiritual, intelli- spiritual intelligence. And so for the for the IQ, one of the first things I would absolutely recommend is to do a have somebody, an outside entity, perform a human capital audit on you. Well, how are your 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 processes and procedures actually touching your people? You probably have things in place that have been there for 10, 15, 20 years that no longer serve you. And they're literally excavating the soul of your people to be able to manage around through them. So that's one thing from the from the now or the the end chapter. In the in the in the um, EQ chapter, I talk a lot about, of course, managing through meaning, helping people to recognize how they matter, what's unique and special about them. Are you letting them cultivate their own passions because that's a source of energy? So, really raising, if you will, I know you're not going to love this at all, Mike, but I'm going to say it anyway. Raising the vibration of an organization, right? You can literally oh feel, you can <laughs> literally feel, right, the energy inside an organization when people yeah. are turned on. So we're, that's what that chapter yeah. really speaks to. And then the last chapter on spiritual quotient is really where we're talking about fully activating, operationalizing purpose inside the organization and elevating, um, elevating the the values around compassion, around you know peace, joy, awe. Those are all higher level emotions that elicit a very different, more creative response and a connective response to the rest of the world. So there are practices around really helping an organization to, to, to operationalize that and also take it one step further and help your individual employees to discover their purpose and then help them see how might they be able to thread that through and further express it through that of the company. That's great. And we will have in the show notes uh, links to uh, everything, to Elisa's uh, radio show, to uh, the book and her other books as well. So 
we'll have all of that and her contact information. And that's all the time we have. Thank you for joining me today, Elise. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's been great, great conversation. And thank you for listening. You can comment on this episode or search our previous episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upcharge is our technical producer, and you can reach him at robmakespods.com. And thank you to Imperative's marketing coordinator, Marianne Hernandez, who keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.